All right. Good morning again. If you will, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. For those of you who are new with us, visiting with us, we started a journey last week um, on the summer in the Psalms. And what we're doing is we're going to be in Psalms during the summers for probably like the next 15 years. So we're just starting in Psalm 1 and we're just going to start working through there and we'll just be there. And then at the end of the summer, we'll go back into John and next summer we'll pick back up where we left off in Psalms and we'll do that for 12, 15 years, however long it takes us. Um, And then maybe we'll all be able to rejoice together at the end of Psalm 150 many years from now. But this morning, we're in Psalm 2. Um, It might not be your typical Mother's Day week, but we made a commitment to go through the Psalms, so that's what we're going to do. So that's where we're at. Um, The title of the message this morning is actually Kiss the Sun, um, which I guess is kind of fitting for being a mother, um, but it's a whole nother deal. Um, There is this huge tragedy inside of the church. It's a tragedy everywhere, but especially, it starts inside of the church. It's sad outside of the church, but it's a tragedy inside of the church. And that is that um, across the board, there seems to be a diminished view of Jesus. Um, We've made him to be weak. We've made him to be powerless. We've made him to not be strong and mighty, and majestic as he truly is. And basically what we have done is we have reduced the character of Jesus to not really being much more than any of us. And that is a tragedy. Because while Jesus was a man, yes, Jesus was the God-man. He is not like us. In that capacity. He is much greater. Much, much greater. And the view that we have of Jesus. And we portray of Jesus. Is not the view. That the Bible. Portrays of Jesus. He's much greater. Than we give him credit for. He is the sovereign king. He is. God in the flesh. He is perfect in power. He is unwavering in his purposes. He is just in all of his ways. He, in fact, is the very definition of righteousness. He is mighty to save, and he is arrayed in splendor. The Bible says that he created all things, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And yet we make a mockery of him mostly every day. We come up with pithy t-shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy, or we have these silly portrayals of Jesus everywhere. But Jesus is not that. Jesus is God. He is our King, and He reigns. In Second Samuel... Chapter 7, and I want to read that for you. Um, I do apologize, the words are not on the screen, but I do want to read a few verses for you in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Starting in verse 1, we read this. 
Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus is the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are filled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Listen to this. He says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the Davidic covenant. That's what is known as the time where God promised to David that his throne would be set for all of eternity. Now David probably only would have understood a small portion of what that meant. But now we know exactly what it means. It means that the throne of God will live on for all generations. That it would be established that kings would come, that kings would rise, that kings would fall, that kings would fail. But eventually, God would supply on that throne a king that would not fail. And that king would never cease to occupy that throne. And Psalm 2 is a beautiful portrait of the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. To where King Jesus becomes the rightful heir to the throne. The perfect king, a mighty king, a glorious king, a king that doesn't fail, a king that loves his people greatly. And who would remain on the throne for all time. And this morning, the main idea of the text is this, that Jesus, as the rightful king, reigns in power 
and invites rebellious sinners to submit to him by faith and receive salvation. Before we dive into Psalm 2, I do want to spend a moment and just pray for us and pray for our time together. Father, as we prepare to dive into this text this morning, I do pray in trust that you have already been working in us to hear from you. So God, we ask that you would speak to us by your spirit through me. It would not be my words, God, but it would be what you would have for us. That we would be challenged by your word, that we would be encouraged by your word to be the people, the men and women and children that you have called us to be. That we would reflect the glory of God in our lives, in our speech, in our conduct, in every move we make. That we would do it all for the glory of your name. We ask that you would bless the reading of your word. That it will ignite within us this passion for your glory. To rekindle within us the, the realization that Jesus is not just another man, but he is king. The true king, the rightful king, the reigning, sovereign, glorious king that you promised thousands of years ago. And that we would understand that this king did not just occupy the throne for a season, but he is still on the throne and he will be for all generations. Ruling as a good and gracious king. So may our hearts be filled with affection for you. That we would hear the goodness of your gospel this morning. That we would be changed by the power of your spirit. And that we would be moved to go forth in mission. And God, for some of us, we just simply need to trust in you. We've never given our lives to Jesus. Maybe some of us do not have a church background and we're just here for the special occasion Maybe some of us are here and we've been going to church for a long time and we assume that we're a Christian and, and most people probably assume we are. We might live morally sound lives, but we've never truly trusted in Christ. Whatever the case may be, God, may you speak and may you move in power today. That your kingdom would be built for the glory of your name. So we do ask that in these next few moments that we have together, that you speak to us graciously but powerfully through your word. And that you would receive glory for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we work through Psalm 2 and as we realize the main idea today, the first thing that we're going to come to is worldly rebellion. Psalm 2, starting in verse 1, we read this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot 
in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Psalm 1 was a very personal psalm. It dealt with the internal battle that we all face to strive for righteousness, to flee wicked, that the wicked will not stand and walk in the way of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But we would delight in the law of the Lord and meditate it on it day and night. So we would strive for righteousness. We would strive for the glory of God to be portrayed in our lives. But Psalm 2 goes public. It goes to being more of a worldwide, international declaration. See, what's natural for every one of us, our natural tendency, and this is without exception, is rebellion. That's what our heart wants, is to rebel. In Romans 3, we read that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We don't want to follow God. In fact, other parts of Scripture calls us anti-Christ. We're haters of God. We're enemies of God. Our natural inclination is to rebel against God and godliness. And here we see that. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Because that's who we are. Our inclination is to be lawbreakers. To rebel against everything that's good. To turn away from godliness. Why? Because we don't want to follow anyone. We want to lead. We want to be, as the old poem says, the master of our own universe, the captain of our souls. We don't want to surrender to anyone. We want to be in, in control. And so everything that goes against our nature, everything that pushes back against us being in control, we want to rebel against. We see it every day in every one of our lives. We see it in our country. We see it all across the world. Rebellion is everywhere. And another thing that history tells us is that any time there is a ruler, that ruler will have enemies. Every one of them. Jesus is not the exception to that rule. In fact, he's probably the epitome of that rule because as king, he has more enemies than any other ruler ever. Why? Because we're all enemies of God. Every person who has and every person who will ever live is an enemy of God. By nature. Thanks to the fall. Thanks to sin. And so why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? It's natural. Before we dove into Psalms, we have been going through the book of John. And what we see constantly are... The religious leaders wanting Jesus' life taken from him because he was threatening their rule. 
He was threatening their power. They were afraid of what they might lose if he truly was the Christ. That's our heart. And so often when we read stuff like that in Scripture, we want to push down on those folks who make those mistakes, but in all likelihood, we would have been there doing the very same thing. We do it every day in our lives where we push back against God's rule for us, where we push back against God's ways and plans for us. We know that the Lord may be leading us to do something in particular, and we fight against it because it's not in our plan. It doesn't fit our convenience. It doesn't fit our life. But the truth is this, that without Jesus and delighting in Him, our natural condition is rebellion against Him, against His ways, and against His reign. Our heart tells us that we want total freedom. But our heart lies in that it tells us what total freedom is, is not actually what total freedom is. We think total freedom from any rule and any God will give us joy. But in fact, we know that surrendering to God and His plans for us is actually where we find true freedom. Which is why back in Psalm 1, when it says, blessed is the man, that actually means happy is the man. Who delights in God, who gives himself to God, who trusts in the leading of God. But whereas verses 1 through 3 point us to worldly rebellion, the next few verses point us to sovereign rule. Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant promised that the throne would be eternal. That people coming from the line of David would be on that throne. And that would ultimately lead to a king that would never cease. And that was Jesus. That is Jesus. The language here is very similar to what we see with earthly kings. That when an earthly king was put in power, they would say that he was anointed. He was anointed as king. And oftentimes in this culture that we're speaking of specifically, the throne was referred to as the holy hill. However, regardless of the situation, all of the world's rebellion, all of the nation's rage, all of the people's plotting in vain, all of them taking counsel together to try to destroy the Lord and His anointed, wanting to destroy their, their bonds and cast away their cords, regardless of all of that, and regardless of all of their hatred towards God. Verse 4 says, He sits in the heavens and He laughs. We serve a sovereign God who is over all things. And it doesn't matter how much we rebel and how much we push back against the plans of God. It doesn't diminish the plans of God. 
It doesn't matter how much our lives want to reflect the opposite of the glory of God. It doesn't matter how much our governments turn against God and godliness. It doesn't matter how our world goes against God and godliness. God will not be moved. He sits in the heavens and he laughs. So the prideful ways of worldly men is mere weakness and powerless rebellion versus God. He will not be moved. And he proves that in verse 6. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy That I is emphatic, showing that God will not give in. All of you try to raise up your powers and all of you in your nations, you try to rise up against me. All of you try to do all of these things, but I am sitting in heaven and laughing. And as for me, I have set, notice the past tense, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Meaning God from all eternity past had a plan and his plan was to set his king, his son, Jesus on the throne and that throne would never be moved. Ever. doesn't matter what enemies will rise it doesn't matter what attacks will come he has set his king on Zion his holy hill he is sovereignly prepared that his throne would be occupied, occupied for all of time which fulfills the prophecy of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it will be occupied by Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the anointed, as we see in verse 2. Interestingly, anointed in Hebrew is translated Messiah, and in Greek it's actually translated Christ. God will rule sovereignly. It doesn't matter how much we object to it. He's still going to rule. He's still going to reign. Because he is the glorious God overall. And it doesn't matter how much you personally rebel versus Jesus, against Jesus. He always has and he always will be ruling and reigning. And that's good news for us. Because in the rebellious nature of our hearts, He's ruling. He's reigning. We may try to turn against, but He never gives way. He's not swayed by our sin. And how often in our lives are we trying to live in godliness and things happen to us, people wrong us, and we want to retaliate. If anyone had the right to retaliate, it would be Jesus. But yet he loves us greatly. 
We've seen wor worldly rebellion in verses 1 through 3, and we've seen the sovereign rule of God in verses 4 through 6, and now, starting in verse 7, we see the kingly inheritance. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Ultimate fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 is the true king's inheritance of his throne. Jesus was the promised king. He's the eternal king. He's the mighty king. He's ruling and he's reigning. He has been set over all of creation and he gives power and authority. He's given power and authority by the Father. And he will rule without question. He's not going to rule as a dictator who is harsh and violent and evil. But he's going to rule as a gracious, sovereign king who greatly loves and he cares for his people. How do we know? Because he came as a shepherd. He came as a humble servant. If he was going to rule harshly, if he was going to rule as a dictator, if he was going to rule over the people... And when I say over, I mean in such a way that we must bow down or we're going to be struck down. Then he would have done that from day one. But he comes loving his people, caring for his people. He comes in a humble way as the suffering servant that we see in Isaiah chapter 53. But when he returns, he'll return as the rightful king. Riding on a white horse, sword flying out of his mouth, many crowns, destroying the nations. And how fitting that we just sung King of Love, referring to Psalm 23. The beauty of a shepherd who leads with a shepherd's staff. That as we stray, he gently pulls us back in with a crook. And as enemies rise, he wards off with the rod. And as he was the good shepherd, he's going to trade that shepherd's staff in for a rod of iron or a rod, an iron scepter into which he will rule over all things. And no enemy will stand against him. It's not exactly the picture of Jesus that we portray so often in our culture, is it? He's not some weak pansy of a man who is simply waiting and wishing on us to do things. He's ruling in power and in might. And the righteous king of glory is fighting tenaciously for his glory and the good of his people. And the last thing we see in Psalm 2 is blessed submission. Look at verse 10 with me. 
Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So we've seen that our natural tendency is rebellion. We've heard that God is sovereignly ruling over all things. We've learned of His inheritance as the rightful king. But what's the point? What's the meaning of all of that? Verse 12, to kiss the sun. It's kind of an odd phrase for us, right? I mean, you have all of this, the Lord is ruling, the Lord is reigning, nothing's going to stand against, kiss the sun. What's that mean? It's a term of submission, it's a term of surrender. When other kings or other wannabe rulers would realize their defeat, they would surrender to other kings by either bowing or giving a kiss. And so we have this charge going out publicly to all who would try to rise up against God. The nations who are raging, the peoples who are plotting in vain, who are trying to to rip apart God's people and the cord that binds them together. The charge is to kiss the sun. To surrender to the rightful ruler of all things. Because here's the truth. That God is good, we're not. God is righteous, we're not. Jesus is without sin, we're not. We're nothing more than rebellious sinners who are desperately in need of the saving grace of God. Seen in the work of Jesus on the cross. And that Jesus who willingly gave his life is now enthroned forever as the king of kings. And even as this powerful, majestic ruler, he loves you and me enough that even in our rebellion, even in our hatred towards him, even in our being enemies of him, he would give his life to save you and me. Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. That means that God knows you. He knows me. He's not knowing us as our friends would know us, as seeing us on the outside, but he knows the very depths of our hearts. He knows the inner wickedness that lies. He knows the hurt. He knows the pain. He knows everything. And yet he demonstrates his love for us in that while we were in that state, Christ would die. That doesn't mean Jesus died for some potential person who could be born thousands of years later. But he knew you and me before we ever existed. And he knew who we would be. He knew our faults. He knew our failures. He knew our sins. And yet he died regardless of that. That's the good king. 
Is it hard to surrender to such a king? Not when we understand that the judgment that is meant for us is actually put on the shoulders of that king. I, I know that most of y'all know this, but if you're new with us, I have a great love for the Chronicles of Narnia. Not my favorite part, but one of my favorite parts is, um, and I'm going to use the movie as an example, because you might have seen the movie, not everybody's read the books, and that's okay. But the books are better, by the way. Um, but... In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if you haven't seen it, I'm going to completely spoil it for you. So here you go. Um, But it might make you want to go watch it. When they finally make their way into Narnia, um, Edmund, the youngest brother, gets duped by Jadis, the queen, the ice queen. And she twists his thoughts, and she's evil. And he becomes a traitor. He betrays his brothers and sis- his brother and his two sisters, and he betrays Aslan, the king. And there's this moment where they learn of this, and Aslan, who is a portrayal of Christ, cuts a deal with the queen that if she would give Edmund back, because she had rightful rule over any traitors that was the law that she inherited them that they would be her people her slaves so Aslan cuts the deal and he's basically said if you return Aslan I mean if you return Edmund you can have me and they meet at the stone table and Edmund is given back and the queen and her vile company pluck Aslan's beard. They make a mockery of him. And then she kills him. And in the movie, you have this pretty awesome picture of um, the sisters sitting back and they're watching and they're weeping. And Lucy and Susan thinks that everything's over. But just as with Christ, as morning, dawn, life returned to the king. Because what the white witch didn't understand was that if one gave his life in purity of sacrifice, then he would be, his life would be returned. So Aslan gives his life for the traitor Edmund. And that's exactly what Christ does for us. As much as we want to resonate with Peter and Lucy and Susan, we're not. We're Edmund. We're the traitors who turn against God and his people. And yet Christ gives himself to redeem us still. That's what it means to surrender to a good king.
A king who would give himself to save his people. A king who would give his own life to redeem his children. And that king is ruling and that king is reigning and he will forevermore. And so the warning is this, to be wise, be warned and serve the Lord or kiss the sun. Or you can continue to rebel and taste the just wrath and anger of God towards sin. There are two options. Last week we talked about two paths. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. For the righteous, God in Christ has redeemed us. Jesus has taken every weight, every sin, every ounce of God's wrath on himself for us. But for those who reject and rebel against Christ, there's a day when you taste that wrath. And you continue to taste it for all of eternity. And I told you in the beginning that this didn't really seem like a typical Mother's Day type message. But it seems kind of down. But it's not. Because he doesn't end with that. He actually ends with this beautiful invitation in the end of verse 12. He says, but bless are all who take refuge in him. Happy are those who trust in Christ. Happy are those who find their joy in the king. Happy are those who trust in the Lord. We think we're going to find our joy in rebelling against everything. If I can just have it my way and do it on my account, then I'll be happy. But that's not the case. That is where sin has blinded us and we, un we don't understand the way of God. Because if we understand the way of God, if we surrender to Him and we seek His glory, then we receive joy. True joy, true happiness is in surrendering to Christ Jesus. And so he gives the invitation, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So surrender your sin and your life to Jesus and he will save you. Let's pray. Father, I pray God that you would speak to us through your word this morning. That we would understand that Jesus is not just some weak man, but he's the sovereign king. And may we trust in him. God, if there are those in here who have been in doubt and seeking, God, I pray that today they would embrace the truth that Jesus died to save them from sin. And that all they must do is simply trust, to repent and believe, to turn from sin and turn to Christ. 
that they can't clean themselves up and then get right with God. It doesn't work that way, God. It Just remind them, teach them that righteousness comes only from God. To trust Jesus first. To take refuge in the King. And God, for the many of us here who have trusted in you, but maybe we're just struggling, God, that you would just encourage us through your word to remind us that you are enthroned forever. That we may can have hope in a ruling and reigning king. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus.